All right, so we are in our series, The Unveiled Life. And uh, we've been, so we've looked at so far, let's just do a, a brief review. We've looked at being a fragrance, right? We said that we are the fragrance of Christ, an aroma or perfume. To some, that aroma is beautiful, and to some, it stinks, right? But our job is to be the fragrance, not the result. And then the second thing we looked at was being a letter of recommendation. That was last week, and we looked at what Paul said about that. Now Paul is going to use a third illustration, and that's actually from where we get the title, The Unveiled Life, for the series from. And it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up, or your phone, whatever you're going to do, pop that thing on right now. And we're reading from verse 18, it says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, or be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I said at the beginning of this series that this verse is the cornerstone verse of the chapters that we're going through. It's the anchor point for this uh, section in 2 Corinthians. And so we're going to look at this fascinating paradigm, but first, let's pray. Let's seek the Lord in this, all right? Father, we know... There are things, O oh Lord, that unless you give us eyes to see, we will not be able to see it or for it to make sense. And this is one of those. The internal presence of the Holy Spirit and his guidance are things that have to be apprehended by faith. And Lord, we seek you this morning. At whatever level we're at, whatever distance we are, whatever closeness we are, that you would minister to us as a father the God of all comfort, and that you would come alongside and, and encourage us and give us eyes to see this this morning. And we seek you for that in your name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so let's pick up the conversation. We're going to start back up a little bit and just go to verse 5, uh, verses 4 through 6. And it says this, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. In other words, Jesus is the bridge. He's the one that makes it possible for us to connect with an all-holy God. That don't happen without Jesus. Boy, that was really bad English, okay? <laughs> uh, at least it got your attention. That doesn't happen without Jesus. You can't connect to the Father. Such is the confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be, and here's the key title, ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It should be noted here that Paul's not just talking to the pastors of the Corinthian church. He's not just talking to the elders of the Corinthian church. He's talking to the Corinthian church. Okay, So he's saying this to everybody. So that's like us, this morning here, he would be saying that to us, that we are ministers of a new covenant. Paul here is also making the distinction that he first highlighted in the book of Galatians. And this distinction is the law, which Paul says produces death versus the spirit, which gives life. And, and by the way, historically, that's a very intense conversation, right? We may not be aware of that, but it really is. He now shifts to the Old Testament illustration, which centers on none other than Moses. So going to verses 7 through 9, says this, Now if the ministry of death 
carved in letters on stone, came with glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Now, the first thing to note is how outrageous and offensive this illustration would be to the Jews. We, we totally lose that because we're so far removed from it. But this is Moses we're talking about here. This is Moses on Mount Sinai. This is God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. And there is nobody in Jewish history, culture, more revered than Moses. And God gave him the sacred writings, right? And the, the fingers written, the language written on stone. Twice, as a matter of fact, because Moses smashed the first set. You can read about that in Exodus. But Paul says, now, if this ministry of death carved in letters of stone, ministry of death, like, wow, those are fighting words, right? And they were. But what Paul is trying to do here is comparing the superiority of what Jesus did in comparison to how God worked through Moses. Hebrews tells us that Jesus has greater honor than Moses Uh, For one who serves in the house, that would be Moses, versus one who built the house, that's Jesus. And as a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, if you want to go back to those Old Testament paradigms in Exodus that we're talking about right now, it was Jesus who led Moses through the Red Sea. It was Jesus who was the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. It was he, Jesus, who was the rock that watered them from the wilderness. In other words, what Paul's arguing for here is that there's something greater than Moses going on when you're looking at Jesus. And he's using this analogy to describe something for the Corinthian church and us, then, uh, that is very powerful and important. Let's read that again. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Again, this is the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. And by the way, that's one of the most pivotal and important moments in all of history. Right? It's a huge deal. Paul is talking about the glory that came with it. So, When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and he was up on the mountain, if you remember, he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, did not eat and did not drink water during that time. That's a crazy fast, okay? That's a supernatural deal. You don't do that humanly, okay? Moses does that, and when he came down off the mountain, it says literally his face shined with the Shekinah glory of God. Isn't that an impressive picture like wow right and this is the uh, same kind of shekinah glory that's described when jesus was transfigured on the mountain with peter james and john remember that it says he was transfigured luke says that jesus's appearance was altered well how was it altered well matthew clarifies for it says his face jesus's face shone like the sun right Moses, from being in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights, did the same thing. His face literally glowed. And even though Paul is saying 
that, that was being brought to an end, it was pretty stunning. What did Paul mean that it was coming to an end? Well, from the moment that Moses stepped down from the presence on the mountain, the glow began to fade. It began to recede. And Paul's saying that if the giving of the Ten Commandments came with that kind of glory, won't the ministry of the Holy Spirit be even more glorious? Watch how this plays out. Look at verses 9 through 11. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the giving of the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Okay, what, what is Paul emphasizing again? What, what is it that Jesus has done? Well, by his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead, what Paul is saying, what Jesus has done far exceeds what Moses did when he went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments. In other words, in scale or scope, right? If you're on, a, on the job site, you, you're aware of this. You've got scope of the project, okay? In terms of scale or scope, the giving of the Ten Commandments was on this level. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is on this level. And that this over here was a foreshadowing of this. This was the fulfillment of this and therefore carries much greater glory. The law had a pivotal role. Uh, let's look at that. In Galatians, Paul says this, and I'm reading from Galatians chapter 3. I'm also reading in the New American Standard Version because I like it better, right? So hang with me. But it says this, Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to, or teacher to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So the law was designed to show us the need for a Savior. In other words, God designed life. He, he wrote the law of God on our hearts, Romans 2 says. So that when we sin, it does something very necessary. What is that? It tells us there's a need for somebody to rescue us. Our hearts say, I'm in trouble. I need someone to rescue us. And that's what the law is designed to do. It's designed to show you where you fail so that you will recognize the fact that you need a Savior. Oh my gosh, I really mess up? Yes, that's why Jesus came. Oh, got it. Okay. It's crazy, right? We are justified by faith in Christ Jesus, not by keeping the law. And so this is what Paul is hammering at. When we're justified by faith in Christ Jesus, it's permanent, right? It's everlasting. It's eternal. And that's why the glory won't fade away, because it's permanent in Christ. Then Paul takes this, step, this illustration a step further. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, uh, NASV would add, in our speech. Okay? Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, 
this is a fascinating tale. Paul brings something to light that you don't even pick up reading through the Old Testament. But he says the deal of what was going on is Moses originally put the veil on his face because of the shine. Later, he kept it on because of the fading. And this is where the veiled and unveiled part of, of the message comes in. See, Moses, Moses had a problem. Okay, Moses had a problem. At first, people freaked out seeing him. Okay? He was like one of those flashlights you see on the commercials that could burn through paper and all that stuff, right? <laughs> Wah! Here he comes, right? You know, they're kind of freaking out over that. Sorry, my old youth guy just came out. And, um, and so he put a veil over his face to cover up. But then it started to fade. Much like those of us who go on a vacation to Arizona or Hawaii, we come back, we're all nice and chocolate, right? Yeah. But the rest of us go, eh. Three, four weeks, you're going to rust out and be white again. We don't care. We don't care. Right? Moses had the same problem. The veil signified or told people there was a glow behind it. But it was fading. Now, I can take that veil off, right? But if I take it off, people will no longer follow me because they'll see that the glory's gone. So what do I do? Well, Scripture records that Moses kept the veil on. Why? Because the outward presentation no longer matched the inward reality. In other words, think about it. Isn't that what a veil does? It covers something up. And so Moses kept it on because he knew that the outward presentation no longer matched. If he pulled the veil off, they'd go, oh, you again, pasty white northwestern person back from Arizona. You're faded. Okay, we don't have to listen to you anymore. <laughs> Moses put the veil on his face so the Israelites might not gaze, Paul says, at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, before we get all over Moses, don't we do the same thing? Right? We have a veil on that says, Christian, but we really don't know the Lord. We have a veil that says walking, but we stopped reading or praying a long time ago. We have another veil, married, but the marriage isn't doing great or it's, it has been a long time since we put any effort towards it. What I'm trying to point out is that it's just as easy for us, not just Moses, to live a veiled life. Okay? We let people see what we want them to see not who we really are. And that's what Paul is arguing about here. This next chart might uh, be helpful in understanding what Paul's trying to outline. He's outlining the two different covenants. So you have the old covenant and the new covenant. And you can see these up on the screens. What Paul is saying, the old covenant, the symbol for that is death. Nobody ever found salvation by the keeping of the law. They found it through faith in Christ. And so... The new covenant is life. Uh, we already looked at that the old covenant is a letter. A uh, new covenant is righteousness by faith. The old covenant, Paul says, is condemnation. Why? Because I broke the law, I feel guilty. The new uh, covenant is transformation. Yes, I feel guilty, but Jesus has forgiven me, and therefore I know I can be forgiven and saved. In the Old Covenant, there's a spirit of forgiveness. 
But in the new covenant, there's a spirit of reconciliation. Right? In the old covenant, it's human effort. In the new covenant, it's the spirit's power. In the old covenant, it's what I do for God. In the new covenant, it's what God does for me. Would be a, a better way to put it. In the old covenant, the glory fades. In the new covenant, it says it's a surpassing or abounding glory. And the old covenant is uh, pictured as a veiled life. The new covenant is pictured as an unveiled life. So this gives you two different ways that you can compare uh, the old covenant and the new covenant. Uh, the next slide, if you talk about veiled ministry, what's a veiled life? What would characterize a veiled life? right? If you're asking, well, a veiled life would be characterized by, number one, covering up reality, right? I, I don't want people to see or know, and so I'm going to put up a veil or a facade uh, for what people really think I am. I'm going to, uh, the phrase Paul used was peddle the Word of God. I don't really buy it myself, but I'll peddle it for the sake of other people. By the way, the worst people in the world to do that, who? Not you, pastors, right? To demand a spirituality of your people that we don't demand of ourselves. That's peddling the word of God. By the way, don't expect a spirituality out of your kids that you aren't willing to have yourself, right? I mean, just note that. The, what else is characterized by a veiled life? Secrets. Right? You've got to keep a lot of secrets. You can't let people know. You've got to have a hidden compartment. Uh, we distort the Word of God. Why? Because we don't like what the Word of God says because we're nowhere guilty, so we're going to change it. Or we'll just conveniently ignore the passages we don't like because they make us feel bad. So we won't, we won't look at it. We'll twist it. Uh, the veiled life takes pride in appearances, takes pride in looking good, takes pride in... Uh, you know, here's my degrees, here's my, right, all that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with degrees or anything, but when I hide behind that, when that's who I want you to see, then that becomes the facade that I hide behind. Uh, the veiled life is big on worldly recognition. And what Paul says is the end result of this type of living is fading glory. In other words, the farther you go, the less you've got. It just fades because it ne was never designed to live life. On the other hand, the unveiled life, what does it look like to live an unveiled life? Well, the first thing is openness, right? You just live an open life. Uh, Pam and I have tried to do this to our best, but... Pretty much if you see us in church is the same as you see us at home, is the same as you see us on vacation, is the same as you see us in Mill Creek. And we just said, let's just do that. For one thing, it's a lot easier. You don't have to remember who you were supposed to be in different places, right? And when you get my age, that's hard to remember anyway. So, I mean, just be who you are. But it's, it's designed, it's, it, one of the things is openness. It's also life. Right? When you live an open life, an unveiled life, when you're walking with the Lord, there's just this life that comes out of it. Uh, there's a righteousness that comes from it. Not righteousness that 
you produce, but a righteousness that the Holy Spirit produces in you. And, and people sense that and pick up on it. By the way, that becomes the fragrance. And some people love that fragrance and some people hate that fragrance. Some people say, oh, you're a Christian. Well, how'd you know? Well, you're smiling. Other people, who gave you the right to smile and be so happy? Right? It, it's, it's an interesting contrast there. Uh, freedom. Okay? Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. Any idiot can do that, right? Freedom is the ability to do what you know you're supposed to do. It takes great courage to do that. And so the unveiled life is a life of freedom. It's also a life of endurance. You have the ability to continue to keep stepping towards, keep leaning in towards the Lord because the Holy Spirit gives you that capacity. It's also commendable. In other words, you are commendable because people recognize that there's integrity between what Jesus has been doing in your life and they can read that. It's also competency. One of the things you learn nine times out of ten is the things that Jesus throws you into, you really don't know how to do. And you know how you learn to do them? By doing them by faith. <laughs> That's how you learn, right? Anybody been there? Is that just me? Hello? Like, ah, right? I can't do that. Sure you can. I'll help you. Oh, okay. Right? You become competent because you're led by the Holy Spirit. And that's how you get good at stuff. That's how you become wise. That's how you get good at counseling is by that kind of stuff. And Paul says then, this is represented by an ever-increasing glory. Because as you go along, you become more and more like the Lord Jesus. And this bridge from the veiled life to the unveiled life can only come about by faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. The Jews could not make the jump from Moses to Jesus. That's where the struggle was. Because in their mind, Jesus was nothing and Moses was everything. And Paul was trying to tell them, Jesus is greater than Moses. And they struggled with that. Look at what he says. But their minds were hardened. He's talking about the Jewish people. Their minds are hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. When Paul says the veil lies over his heart, what's he saying? He's saying they, the Jews, look to the law, the Old Covenant, for their righteousness, and they remained veiled. They couldn't see what Jesus had really done. Paul's also condemning the Judaizers who had infiltrated the Corinthian church uh, and mandating that they keep the law. And in this particular case, Paul's saying this is just a case of the blind leading the blind. Paul emphasizes that only in Christ is the veil taken away. Look what he says in 16 and 17. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Hey, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. This is where all these biblical phrases come in. It's from this kind of idea. Uh, born again, I was blind, but now I see. I saw the light, life in the Spirit, out of, his, out of the darkness and into His marvelous light. We're all familiar with those phrases. That all comes out of this verse that Paul is talking about right here. And what it's trying to describe is that when a person turns to the Lord, something amazing happens. 
something new, something different. In one moment, you cannot see the Lord because He is veiled to you. You are blind in a sense. You can't see past this. And after you turn to the Lord, when you turn towards Him, which is repentance, right? I refuse to go my own way. I agree to go His way. Then when that happens, you, the, you see the Lord be, because you apprehend Him by faith. And then you see Jesus. I remember when that happened to me. Nothing in my life really changed, but everything was the same and everything was different. It was a completely radical shift. It was incredible. You turn towards him. It says, whenever anyone turns towards the Lord. Now there's two aspects to this. Because the question on the table today is, does anybody need to turn towards the Lord? Right? We've got our clan in here. We've got our clan on the screen. Anybody need to turn to the Lord? I'm talking to you this morning. You're sitting out there. You're veiled. Nobody knows what's going on in your heart because you haven't let them know what's going on in your heart. Anybody need to turn to the Lord? You don't have to stand up. It's okay. But, but track with me, would you, for a second? Would you just think along with me for a second here? Anyone need to quit going their own direction and repent and go towards the Lord? Now, this may be for salvation, you have never turned to the Lord before and you do not know Him. Maybe you've been veiled and, and stood on the outside looking in for a long time, going, what, what's with these crazy people? What, what do they have? What's different? Coming into a relationship is what is called being saved, or as Paul would say, the veil is removed. And a heart prayer would be something simple like this. It would, you could say, Lord Jesus, I'm veiled and I can't see you. I just admit it. I'm veiled and I can't see you. And I need to turn towards you. I need to, by faith, ask you to save me and give me eyes to see. And that would be a really valid prayer. Lord Jesus, please take away my blindness that I could see you by faith. But the, there's a second uh, or another level that it also could be on that you may know the Lord. Uh, you may have known him for a long time, but you know right now that you've walked away from him. Away from the light and into the darkness. You may have what I call a spiritual cataract. Okay? Where everything's kind of fuzzy and blurry. And you can't really see. You no longer have freedom. You've lost clarity with your walk with Christ. You no longer see clearly, but rather it's as through a glass darkly. I know because I have one and I have to get it fixed again. Oh boy, such fun, right? You also need to turn to him and have the Spirit of God give you eyes to see again. And your prayer could sound something like this. Lord, originally I veiled my eyes so you couldn't see what I was doing. Why? By the way, that is really dumb. Can we just throw that out there? Darkness and light are alike to the Lord, and he sees all. So the idea that I can cover up so he can't see what I'm doing is really foolish, but we do it, right? Anyways, Lord, I originally veiled my eyes so you couldn't see what I was doing. I like my sin more than you. And I wanted to walk away, but now I'm lost. 
And I admit I am blind. I cannot find my way back on my own initiative. And the truth of the matter is this darkness is really scaring me. Could you please turn the lights back on so I could see you again? I was wrong not to trust you. I fully admit it. Help me turn back to you with a full heart and with full repentance. I ask for mercy. Amen. Coaching tip. Okay? Coaching tip. Do not listen to the voice that counters those prayers or counters this offer of grace that says, it's too late, he'll never hear you, what you did was too far, you blew it, God couldn't care less about you or your mess. There is a voice that speaks that way, and that voice is not from the Father or from the Holy Spirit. Paul says, whoever turns to the Lord, whoever turns to the Lord. So when anyone turns to the Lord, God hears that prayer. And Paul says the veil will be removed. Either of these prayers, I want to suggest this morning, are extremely valid. And if you prayed either one, please just let us know or bump somebody and say, hey, I, I, I prayed that prayer this morning. We'd be glad to walk alongside you in faith, in your faith adventure. Okay, let's wrap up. Verse 18, now we come back to verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Hopefully this verse now makes more sense. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This verse holds an important idea for us, and it has to do uh, another idea, and that has to do with the idea of transformation. Right? You might be sitting there this morning. Some of you old football, if you're football fans, would remember Jim Moore, and they're asking about playoffs. He goes, playoffs? What playoffs? Right? And you may be sitting there this morning going, transformation? What transformation? Right? You're looking at your life going, blah. Right? I don't see any transformation. What are you talking about? As a matter of fact, you know, Steve, my non-believer friends seem to be experiencing more change than I do. Where is this so-called transformation? And a big part of the problem is that when we think of transformation, we tend to think of instantaneous. Right? Boom! Now! Zap! Kind of thing. Uh, like Jesus on the mount, or Paul getting knocked off his horse, or Iron Man putting on his suit, or Superman in his phone booth, right? We tend to think of the big, stunning, one-time kind of thing. But this verse clues us into something, and it's really important, okay? If you're discouraged, hang in here. God's got a word of encouragement for you. Here it is. What does it say? We are being transformed. Look at it up there. We are being transformed into the same image. Whose image? Jesus' image. We're being transformed the same image from one degree of glory to another. What does one degree of glory mean? One degree. One degree at a time. Now that may not seem like much, but in faithfulness over a lifetime, it adds up to a lot. Uh, you've seen this diagram before, right? You love it so much. You're so grateful for it. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, that thing again. But this is simply a diagram of how transformation happens. You have the Holy Spirit that draws a line 
right, and says, okay, don't do anything underneath the line anymore. That's off limits to you. Anything on the top of the line, don't worry about it. We'll get to it, right? And if you cross that, that's in. I have to repent, come back. And then God, in his genius, backs the line up, right? And here we see he backed it right over one or two things that I want to hold on to. Always remember that when God backs the line up over some things that he wants you to stop, he's got some things for you on the other side of the line that are really good, but you can't get them if you don't give those up first. You can't put them in your back pocket, sashay across the line and say, hey, Jesus, you and I, we're doing good, right? We're tight. No, that doesn't work. Okay? We have to be willing to give up what's on this side of the line, and you can see the qualities there. We've all seen that, all right? So, but what does one degree at a time mean? Look at this now. What it means is God starts with you. There's the first line, right? Holy Spirit line. Then we add a degree. Oh. Whoop, whoop. Really rocking it here. Really ripping it up. Man, we're rolling fast. God, could we get this thing going? Yes, we can. Line three. Oh. You mean like I have to read every day? Like I have to pray every day? Like I have to forgive? Her? Oh. Hey, you're really doing good. Next step. Here we go. Wow, really rolling now. Look how far we got. What's, what's he trying to teach us? Faithfulness, patience. <laughs> Don't we love that word? Right? He's getting us to follow him and each step, right? We call it our walk with God. And what God's saying in our walk with God is you don't rush ahead of him. You ever see kids in a mall, right? One family, Billy's just racing ahead. Come back, Billy, right? And the other one, Johnny's dawdling and he's standing there and he's twisting his foot, you know. Come on, Johnny, we've got to get, right? And, and, and Galatians says this is our walk with the Holy Spirit. Our walk, that's where we get the term walk with God. It says stay in step with the Spirit. And so what you don't have to worry about is if you're there watching me, you don't have to worry about my steps because the Holy Spirit's taking care of my steps just like he'll take care of your steps. You don't have to worry what somebody else's transformation process is. You just, unless it's your husband or wife, right? But you just have to watch what God's laying out for you. What has God laid out for you? What's, what's the steps he's asking from you? And that engages you into the transformation process. So here's the question this morning. In this whole veiled and unveiled life and the transformation process, regardless if you have been super obedient, you've walked with the Lord a long time, or you just started, what's your next step? What's your one degree? Right now this morning, as you're sitting there, what's the one degree that God wants from you? What's the step of obedience? What's the turning towards him? And guess what? If you get that one down, he'll be really proud of you. And then he'll say what? Next step. Right? And life is a series of next steps. What's your one degree? What's your turning towards Jesus? It's moving towards the unveiled life. And Paul says, it's spectacular. Let's pray. Father, we are impatient and we would like to be transformed instantly, mostly because then we wouldn't have to work at it. 
But we also know cooperating with you isn't always the easiest thing in the world. And Father, I pray that this morning, uh, that this made sense, that people just go, yes, that's how the Lord has worked with me. That's right. That's what the Bible says. I have to repent. I have to turn towards the Lord. I have to drop the veil. I have to get right. Lord, I pray that people will do that, that they will take that step with you, whatever it is. And Lord, we give that to your great hope and pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.